Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we have very special guest Shannon Applekine with us, who is the author of the four-volume series Designers and Dragons on the history of role-playing games and role-playing game companies, as well as all the historical blurbs of classic D&D stuff on DriveThruRPG and DMs Guild, and a whole bunch of other stuff that they almost couldn't shut me up talking about a minute ago in order to start the show. So, uh, Shannon, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks very much for having me. You know, we, so before we get into Shannon's work, we should um, point out that something that's touched um, all of us uh, in the last week or so is uh, famed uh, early D&D designer Leonard Lakofka passed away about a week ago, and um, we personally learned about that from our friend Jay Scott, who uh, performs as Lord Gasumba on Twitch, who is very, very close to Jay and had him on a weekly basis. And Shannon, I, I saw that you wrote a, a blog post recently about Len passing, and I, I, I think that your your analysis is that he was an underappreciated icon of early D&D. Is that right? I think so. Uh, he didn't ever work for TSR. He was very involved in the... Uh, wargaming community that kind of preceded it. And uh, as far as I can tell, he was a pretty good friend of Gary Gygax. And so the original Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master Guide, all had his imprint on it pretty strongly. And uh, I feel like he kind of had a very invisible contribution that today a lot of what you play if you're gaming is based on uh, things that, you know, he suggested are especially his early adventures that he wrote it that he wrote, and you just might not quite realize it, uh, especially because he didn't get quite the name recognition as some of the people who actually worked at TSR. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, honestly, for, for a long time, uh, anytime someone asks me, like, what's your favorite classic module, my go-to is always Bone Hill. And I think it's one of the very few good examples uh, from that period, uh, possibly the only one, uh, I guess maybe... Maybe I might lump B2 in there of sort of a, a, sa a real sandbox, right? A sort of uh, something that could stitch other pieces together of, of a starting place and some dungeons and a wilderness to explore. And um, it's really I've, I've launched many campaigns with that as a starting point. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm always surprised that more people don't don't know that one very well. Yeah, I think when and, I was uh, growing up. Yeah, it was one of the ones that I didn't own either. It just didn't have quite the uh, recognition, again, of some of the others. But in reading it since, it's an amazing adventure. Lynn uh, actually put uh, little mini dungeons in the town to make yep. the town an environment that was more than just a home base. And, you know, not even that the home base uh, trope was being used a lot. Uh, his wilderness is really intriguing because he doesn't have it laid out as... Uh, hex crawl. He doesn't have it laid out uh, as random encounters. He has it laid out kind of um, descriptively to say, hey, these are the different organizations and groups in this area. You should probably do something with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's, totally. It's, uh, it's very, it's, you know, it's probably honestly probably drawing on that myself when I did my deep analysis of Dyson's Delve and broke it down into factions and what are the groups and how do they interact. Um yeah, you get a lot of that in, in Bone Hill, I think, which is really interesting. And then extra detail that maybe is totally irrelevant, right? Like you have this whole layout of the internal of the castle, of the Baron's castle. Why? Don't know. Baron, as far as we know, is a friendly NPC who probably you would have no reason to assault his castle. But I think there's this nod there of like, who knows what could happen in your adventures? And maybe you're going to need this. Yeah. Um, and little pieces. Go ahead, Shannon. <laughs> Uh, Lynn said when he was uh, talking about that module in one of his very rare, rare interviews that he did, uh, it's over on Grognardia, if anyone ever wants to take a look, he said his intent was he really wanted to be able to describe a, a village area, an area of civilization, because he felt like it hadn't been done. Mm. Uh, the village of Omelette was really the only predecessor and 
uh, Lynn wrote his stuff quite early, so it's very possible he didn't and seen the village yet when he was writing it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And there's there's bits and pieces of, of Bone Hill that stick in my mind to this day. Like the the new undead are in there are really really creepy. The fact that he had you know a combined roster of all the monsters in the dungeon that you were kind of keeping mm-hmm. track of this actual population and just instead of just abstract wandering monsters and in the wilderness if i if and i haven't read it in a while so i might be misremembering but there's a there's a church of the deity of gambling right and the church is just a casino so you go you am i is that right is that in bone hill or have i misremembered that i that one doesn't wait is that one there i don't remember yeah okay yeah it's my bad but a lot, of, a lot of really interesting details that uh, that Len wrote in that. And you know, for my purposes, to get to get off Bone Hill for a minute, um, you know, the majority of my, you know, my blog that's been up for 12, 12, 13 years at this point is on issues of scaling in, like maybe using miniatures for D and D, scale of time, distance, and stuff like that. And there was a really critical uh, Dragon Magazine article by Gary, like around nineteen seventy six or so. Where he, and it's the only time that I ever know that Gary like went like I clearly made some mistakes in the scaling of specifically spells area versus range and stuff like that. And he specifically thanks Len for pointing out how they need to fix some of the things. And that's where the um, the rule of um, you know inches uh, for area effects of spells are the same in the dungeon as the wilderness. It's always one inch equals ten feet. He's got there. Um, whereas previously in the wilderness, all of a sudden it's blowing up a whole town. Um, and he specifically thanks Len for pointing that out. And I'm like, apparently Len, to my, to my knowledge, Len was the only person that ever convinced Gary that he'd made a mistake as far as I can tell. So that's completely, <laughs> completely epic. And like to, 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 to my, you know, mathematical looking at scaling wargaming sense kind of thing. Uh, that's a big contribution that Len brought in to, uh, to, to kind of rationalize stuff. At a really key point. Yeah. This 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 may be a bit of a tangent, but there's a great question here in the in the chat of is is that then the progenitor of West Marches, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really fascinating because Michana, maybe you have opinions on this, having studied the history of like I always thought West Marches style play was really like just a modern reinterpretation of probably how Gary and uh, and others around him were playing originally. Yeah. Uh- Quite possibly. It's hard to say. I, I feel to a certain extent that uh, it's unlikely anything we're doing right now is really what they were playing now, but kind of our interpretation of the feel of how they might have been playing. It's just so hard to see back through the mist of history to something serious as how did they actually play the game? Yeah. You know, Shannon, on that point, like it, like about a month ago, it occurred to me to go looking for a particular thing, and I became like both surprised and kind of frustrated, and then kind of not surprised about the fact that um, you know, particularly compared to like how everything's on the internet being recorded all the time, is why isn't there any either video or audio recordings of Gygax or Arneson or Lakofka running a game ever? Why didn't anybody ever think to put up a camera or even a, even a cassette tape? To your, to your knowledge, is there any recording of them ever running a game? No, that's a great question. As far as I know, not. I think the closest we've gotten are probably the uh, interviews that they've done with players for Secrets of Blackmore. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to see more of that sort of thing. But, yeah, why didn't someone at GaryCon, you know, record a game that uh, some of the more recent people were running? I'm sure Lynn ran some there at some point. Um mm-hmm. Not to my knowledge. It's very funny. Back in the 60s and 70s, people would put a video, uh, an audio cassette on anything to tape it. Um, You look at something like Doctor Who, and there's audio cassettes of everything, even though a lot of the episodes are gone. I don't know of anything for our hobby like that. Crazy. It seems like we just missed it. I feel like, you know, <laughs> just a year or two after, you know, Gary and Dave passed, it would have been 100% obvious that we should be doing that all the time. And we, we yeah. somehow just barely missed that in this weird historical coincidence. It's really too bad. Yeah. That is. 
so anyway, so we will we will certainly all uh, we'll all miss Len uh, greatly. Uh, Paul and I got to speak with him briefly on the Lord Gasumba show, and we we a couple months back, and we are consider that to be a really precious memory that we got to interact with him. So we'll miss him very greatly. So, uh, Shannon, let's talk about your history, your incredibly in-depth history in role-playing games. Now, the, the first question I usually ask a guest on our show is, how did you personally first get into role-playing games? What was the very first game that you, that you played yourself? Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure what brought it to my attention, uh, but at some point I started telling my dad, I want that Dungeons & Dragons. This was 81, 82 or so. So the one that I'd seen was the... Uh, basic D&D set by Tom Mulvey with the beautiful Errol Oldis cover of, mm-hmm. of Sorcerer and a Fighter uh, going after a dragon. Um, and so he bought me a copy of that for my birthday, probably Christmas, one or the other. And uh, then he went so far beyond the call of duty that it still strikes me. He's never been someone who likes games very much. He's an engineer and, you know, games just... Uh, don't strike him as, as something interesting or, or, or amusing. But he read the D&D rules, he learned how to play them, he stumbled over the combat rules, couldn't figure out what to do with those, but other than that, then designed a dungeon and ran me through it. And to get around the combat rules, you know, oh. do we do in the old uh, adventure games like the Colossal Cave and such where it was like, oh, there's skeletons to fight. You have to figure out to pick up the rocks and throw them at them. But that, that was my first ever D&D game that my dad ran for me. And after that, I you know, found groups. Uh, must have been in elementary school at the time. Um, but that was it. And basic D&D was much of what I played for a while before I started learning about uh, Champions and Traveler were probably the next two. Fantastic, fantastic. Great. You know, I gotta say, we are big uh, fans of the Moldvay uh, D&D game. And if you look behind Paul's head, actually, the pink box, I believe, behind yep, his head yeah. is that. It's right there. As a matter yep. of fact. And, uh, yeah. you know, you look at the Moldvay rules, and time and time and time again, I'm just really impressed by um, uh, you know, really wise, sharp edits and advice. And it's a it's a great, great beginner's game. And there's a, there's a big reason why that was the, 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 the moment of... Um, uh, a burst of, of you know uh, public attention to D and D is 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 around that time. There's a, a really solid rule set. Yeah. Um, your your story of your of your dad actually running the thing actually really speaks to me. I, my dad certainly never played, but uh, looking back, he did some amazing things, including actually uh, taking me to my first Gen Con back in '92 <laughs> and spending the whole weekend going to ball games and uh, visiting breweries and just checking out wisconsin because he he would drop me off in the morning say all right have fun (laughs) disappear to go explore uh, milwaukee and then come back and pick me up and i'm like why why would it why did he do that i have no idea (laughs) seems above and beyond the call i'll just say briefly that what my dad did while during that during that same age period was uh to play chess against me and and brutalize me (laughs) Uh, and, and, and just crush me at chess from like age three, four, five, six, seven, eight on, and be like, yeah, someday he's going to beat me, and then that'll then I'll never win. I'll probably never win again, and that actually did happen at one point. That's cool. Um, and then uh, and then yeah, anyway, that's where I, that's how that's how I DM these days. <laughs> that's how I DM ever since is like crushing brutality that it's on the other person's responsibility to try to survive. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, uh, so Shannon, when I first, uh, like a number of years ago, when I got on Drive Through RPG and I first noticed um, the historical uh, notes on the classic Dungeons and Dragons products, there, um, you know, I was expecting, oh yeah, there's going to be about a paragraph here. I'll look at this, and then it just—it's like a whole essay on every single product by you. And I was just, I was blown away by the amount of attention and detail that I really wasn't expecting to see on DriveThruRPG. How did, how did that project come to pass? And was that material that you'd written previously for other, uh, other stuff? Or was that fresh writing and research that you were doing for DriveThruRPG and now DM field? Yeah, uh, it was definitely fresh. Uh, what happened was uh, DriveThruRPG got the uh, rights to start producing the... Uh, D&D products, uh, TSR's catalog online. Um, 
And so they reached out to me from my uh, work with Designers and Dragons. I should say there was one other person involved early on, Kevin Polk. If you search through, you'll find maybe at this point he did a quarter of them, 20% of them. I'm not sure. We were doing 50-50 at the start. Uh, and they said, hey, you know, we'd like a couple of paragraphs, uh, like you expected to see. And by that time, I was already uh, well involved with the history of the industry because uh, I, I think by then I'd had to. I, I was working on the second edition of Designers and Dragons at the time. And so I said, yes, I would love to write this for you, but I need to retain rights for it. And so we went back and forth on that for a while. We finally figured out a, a contract where I could license it to them. They'd have it exclusive for a few years, and then I could do with it what I wanted while they had non-exclusive. And I think one thing that a lot of um, not quite uh, publishers don't understand is that by keeping a, a creator with a stake uh, in something that they're writing, you innately generate more interest, more content. And so over time, uh, my goal had always been, I want to make sure I have these for a book, I thought, uh, if I ever want a book. And because of the fact that I was writing it for them primarily, but for a book secondarily, I was willing to put the time in. Um, often I'd have a uh, schedule where uh, there was this huge burst of, uh, we, we published 30 or 40 uh, articles in products uh, when we released them in January 2016, 2015, whatever year that was. Um, and after that, we were releasing, I think, about six products a week. Uh, Kevin was doing about half of them at the time. I was doing about half of them at the time. We kind of divided the line right down the middle of AD&D to E. Um, and so what I'd do is uh, on Friday night, I'd get done with work. I'd spend some time with the wife. And then I'd spend two or three or four hours researching. Uh, I'd generate uh, piles and piles of content. Uh, and then on Saturday, I'd usually take my computer up to one of the local parks. Uh, thus get off the internet and turn all of the content I had into articles spending another couple of hours and I'd edit it on Sunday and then I'd post them over to a uh, drive through to be released when they came out. Um, but it was really because of the fact that I knew I just, I, I started getting burned out about a year or year and a half about when uh, Kevin stopped writing and I started picking up most of the products. But despite thinking, hey, this is a lot of work for, you know, fairly small returns, I still had the book in front of me. And that's actually what I'm working on now. Uh, about six months ago or so, I, I cut off my uh, full-time job, cut it back to half-time, and I've started spending the other half-time working on Designers and Dragons-related things. And one of the things I'm doing is taking all of those histories from D&D Classics, DMs Guild, and putting them into actual books. And so, end of September, I finished what should be the first book, Hundred thousand words covering everything from chainmail up through 1983, and then going a little bit further. This is only AD and D, by the way. Going a little bit further just to get the last bit of Greyhawk out. Uh, I think there's probably going to be four books covering all of the AD and D first edition and basic D and D. Wow, wow, and of course, so Paul has what Paul has just brought up. I think are the covers of your original designers and uh, dragons uh, products. Released around that time, what, 2015-ish or something like that, through Evil Hat? Yeah. Publishing, 14, I think. 15, there. there you go. There you go. And uh, so, um, uh, so of course, that's one volume per decade. So to, to date, what's, what you have, what ava what's available at Evil Hat, and people can see this at uh, DriveThruRPG, um, is a volume for the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. And uh, what Shannon's talking about is the is the, the additional expansion to that that he's working on, which sounds like it's going to be at least as large or even larger in total, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. And you know, so in the yeah. chat, I see that uh, our friend John Miller actually had the same the same question that I was about to ask. Actually, as a matter of fact, is um, uh, John asks, "How do you do the research? What are your sources? Are uh, you looking at the original games, or interviews, or forums, or all of the above?" Uh, yes, yes, it is all of the above. Um, magazines are the other very important source. Uh, generally, when uh, researching an article, it's always the most important to me to get the best information I can from the people most directly inter in involved in the company, because the histories are all individually about companies. The first book starts off with uh, TSR, and the last one ends with uh, Post Human Studios, I think. Um, and so... 
uh, the people directly involved with the companies as close as possible to the time period when the companies were active. And so that means the actual sources vary a little bit based on the time period. Uh, when you look at things like TSR, my best sources were Dragon Magazine at the time, where Gary Gygax uh, thankfully wrote quite a bit in you know, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, often about the company, about work he was doing on Greyhawk, uh, that type of thing. Uh, when you move up to the odd odds, or actually I've started work on Designers and Dragons of the Tens, uh, websites are often the best source. Uh, archive.org is one of my favorite tools because uh, I've just been writing about some of the Swedish companies that have burst onto this American English language scene, at least in the last few years. Uh, Riot Mines, Helmgast, um, uh, the Free League uh, and Jarnringen are the four that I've been writing about recently. And they all have great websites that go back through their whole history. You just got to dig into the archive sites. Um, forums uh, less frequently have the immediately um, first-person uh, stuff that I want, but often reading what people uh, think and talk about and analyze about the products is uh, at least interesting and informative to help frame things uh, in their time frame. I, I love interviews. My my first thing I will often search through is interviews. Um, before I started work on Designers and Dragons, I started putting together a gaming index at RPG Net, uh, and that's turned out to be one of my best resources because it's kind of developed in a way that makes it easy to research. And so it's set up so that I can easily find uh, an interview in any of the magazines indexed on the uh, uh, index, uh, and. Uh, Often I will also look for ones online, podcasts as well. The podcast takes so much more time to listen to than just reading an interview. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, 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 that's, that's totally where I am. I tend to be a little bit, a little bit down on uh, video or audio, um, you know, technical information, I guess, even though my, my students are, are, you know, swim in that kind of environment. I'm like, but it's so slow. You can just, you can just read text so much faster. Come on. <laughs> um, you know, so of course, when, when, when we think of uh, prominent uh, role-playing game historians, uh, you know, at, at least in my mind, like the top three names that pop up are yourself, Shannon, uh, and John Peterson, and then uh, Griff, who works on Secrets of Blackmore. Um, uh, just, I just know his nickname for some reason. Um, do you guys like, are you guys, uh, competitors? Like, do you feel that like you're competitors and you're trying to get a scoop before, uh, people like uh, John Peterson or Griff, or are, are you ever cooperating with, with, uh, exotic materials that, that one of you discovers and thinks that other people should know about? Are you, are you competitors or do you ever, do you ever connect with those guys? Uh, Definitely don't feel like they're competitors. Whenever John publishes something new, I make sure my fans know about it as well. Uh, and, you know, he has intriguing stuff that he's put out, certainly uh, playing at the world, his uh, major book that he's released, well, one of his major books at this point, his first one, uh, was a very important source for uh, the early parts of uh, the TSR history and Designers and Dragons, because he was able to get out and get so many primary sources that, I've just never had a chance to see that it was foundational. Um, I don't know that we've worked together a lot. Uh, I think we've exchanged discussions of some things. Uh, there are certainly a number of uh, people that I talk with. Uh, Alan Grohe, who is a big fan and historian of, uh, of Greyhawk, uh, and Rob Hunts, uh, I know has more than once answered questions for me. Um, and I know I've also answered questions for a few of the other people who are working on histories for the industry. So I feel like we're all very cooperative. I hope everyone else feels like that. I've never seen any indication of anything else. Uh, when uh, uh, John was out uh, working on uh, out uh, advertising and getting attention for his second book, uh, Arts and Arcana, that he worked on with a few other names that I'm not going to try and come up with all of this moment, that they're all great people. Uh, I briefly ran into him and chatted with him a bit when he was in Berkeley, where I lived at the time. That's that's great. I, I've uh, very briefly spoken to uh, to John uh, Peterson at one point. Uh, uh, great guy, from what I could tell. And everyone you just named, uh, you know, I, I I did work on a, a product with uh, uh, Rob Kuntz uh, in the early two thousands, 
which was great. And Alan Grohe also put us in touch with uh, Jay Scott, who's been an, an enormous support of our show. So they've, they, every one of those guys has, has somehow has contributed in some way to what we do here as well. Um, so yeah. Paul, maybe so. John Miller in the chat keeps coming up with questions that I think <laughs> I would have come up with a minute later if if I was as, as sharp as John is. So maybe you can bring up the one three ago and read that. Do you agree with John Peterson on da da da? da? Sure, sure. Uh, so John asks, do you agree with John Peterson that interviews relying on memory of the subject are often unreliable and written documents uh, from the period are far superior? Uh, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, if I can find a design note from the time, uh, if I can find an interview from the time, uh, if I can find some you know, discussion in the uh, actual original books that were produced, those are all far superior. And I think I really learned that in Designers and Dragons from looking from interviews at some people who gave interviews over a very extended period of time, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100, that there were different variations, that there were things that they said differently at different times. And that's just because memory changes, because uh, our views of how we were involved with things change. It, it's just all very uh, unreliable. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's a real challenge. Um, it's a real challenge, I think, especially when you get things that are contradictory. And uh, I, I've certainly seen a fair amount of stuff that's contradictory. But the recent interviews I absolutely use if they're all that's available or if they give points that aren't available elsewhere. But I always take them with a grain of salt. I make sure they don't contradict something from at the time. And I make sure they don't contradict my impression or feeling of how things should be. Because sometimes I just see things, I'm like, that's wrong. I don't understand why it's wrong, but it's wrong. Um, one of the most uh, recent uh, things I wrote about was something called Resident Publishing, who put out a few books. And like one of their copyright dates on one of their books was off by two years for when it was actually published. You know, not actually in an interview, but just the type of thing that you get in there and you think, how do I figure out what actually happened there? Right, right. Yeah, I certainly, it, it reminds me, uh, when I was in uh, a senior in high school, my uh, uh, English teacher and, uh, and the uh, uh, faculty member for the newspaper had a big sign in the back of his room that said, consider the source. And, uh, you know, I always, I would, you know, it's just all the more shame, right, that we don't have, like, actual firsthand recordings of what was going on. Because I would also assume, regardless of, like, modern interviews of memory being skewed, that even, like, interviews from the time period or written material probably were done pr as promotional uh, efforts, right? So possibly yeah. the words are being crafted to to portray things in a certain way. Well, I think absolutely. Um, you, you look at the history of Dungeons and Dragons, and I think because it's been on such a large canvas, you can really see how things... Uh, have differed in how interviews were being used uh, for promotional purposes, yeah. as you see. You know, when I was uh, growing up in gaming in the 80s, Dungeons and Dragons was Gary Gygax. And it wasn't just that it was Gary Gygax, but it was the D&D basic set that were written by a variety of different people. They were all actually listed as by Gary Gygax and, you know, edited by Tom Moldray or, you know, right. developed by uh, Frank Mincer or or whatever. And I'm not quite sure when it was, the odd odds maybe, that we said, oh yeah, Dave Arneson was involved in this. Um, and I feel like it's kind of swung back and forth a few times with different people saying, hey no, Dave Arneson was really much more important to this, or hey no, Gary Geig actually was. And I don't know that we've correctly found the balance, but I'm very happy to you know, see things like Secrets of Blackmore, which are giving a different point of view that we can kind of put into the uh, uh, blender to see how it all works. One of the things that to keep in mind was that Dave Arneson fired two different filed two different lawsuits against uh, TSR in the eighties. The first one to get any uh, royalties at all off of the AD and D books because uh, AD and D Gary got said, "Hey, that's my thing." You know, Dave Arneson. We worked on original D and D, but that was a different product. And then even after that, um, 
they'd start to produce an original product. And there was a second lawsuit over the Monster Manual, too, because uh, when the Monster Manual 2 came out, they said, okay, this is absolutely nothing to do with uh, uh, Dave Arneson at that point. Uh, and so Dave had to file another lawsuit, and the judge came back and said, no, Monster Manual 2, that's just a new edition of the Monster Manual, and we've already determined that's worth uh, royalties. And so anything that you look at in that era, that's got to be touched by the fact that uh, Gary was very aware that there were these lawsuits ongoing, yeah. and he had to be very careful about what he wrote and what he said. Um, yeah. There's a kind of infamous uh, editorial that uh, Gary Gygax wrote in Dragon that says stridently, uh, Lord of the Rings had absolutely no influence on D&D. Uh, I put stuff in on it just because I thought people were interested in it, but, you know, it was just a facade. And uh, it, that was a case where they'd also gotten a cease and desist from um, uh, Mithril Enterprises, whoever had the movie rights uh, at the time. Um, and again, you have to look at how does that affect what he said, even at the time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was, I was, I was l preparing myself to bring up the Lord of the Rings question because I think feel like that's like the classic example, right? Of, of just how much of an influence was it? Because of course, the first printing, right, has Nazgul and Hobbits, and just they're all over the place, right? And then, and then yet you have all this writing from Gygax that says, no, nah, I, I didn't really like Lord of the Rings. I enjoyed the Hobbit, but the rest of it's not for me, and it, w it was no influence. And how much of that was just defensive against lawsuits versus? Uh, actual opinion uh, is, is is perhaps hard to say. I think it's very hard to say. It looks to me like uh, Gary Gygax's main influence and what really interested him was the swords and sorcery fiction, right. not the high fantasy fiction. And so I can totally believe that was the main thing that he was uh, building on and trying to recreate and represent when he wrote the fantasy supplement and then Dungeons and Dragons. But as you say, uh, you know, Hobbits and Nazgul, they're absolutely in there. So you have to ask, did it influence what he was doing? Did it influence the development of the game? And he says no, and the content says maybe. Um, but then you also have to ask, how much was it influenced after Gary mm -hmm. Gygax, by the way? And I think there you have to say a huge amount. So maybe he did or didn't put it in. We have no way of knowing at this time. We have to wonder about the things that were said at the time because of the uh, cease and desist that was on hand and the fact that they had to get it out. But I was just looking for my continued work on the TSR books at uh, the Far Historical uh, uh, Adventure from 1984, 5, 6, somewhere in there. Um, that isn't much liked by people nowadays, but it was clearly strongly influenced by The Hobbit, I would say. You know, there's an area that looks like the Shire to me. Uh, there's goblins riding wolves who are the big foe. I mean, that's the Hobbit there. And even if that wasn't by Gary Gygax, it was still in the early to mid-80s, which makes it a strong foundational influence on the game. And it tells you that writers at that time felt like Lord of the Rings was part of the game, even if uh, Gary at that point was clearly saying it was not. Right, right. And um, uh, and it, it is true that uh, all that stuff is in uh, uh, Chainmail Fantasy uh, as well as original D&D Chainmail Fantasy. In fact, my argument actually looking at Chainmail Fantasy is that the list of monsters there is almost the, 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 the order of appearance of monsters in Lord of the Rings uh, pr pr pretty, pretty closely. Um, so it's all the, the hobbits and Ent and Balrogs and Nazgul and uh, Barrow Whites. Um, all that stuff is totally, uh, totally knitted all the way through there. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's interesting is that you know the interaction between you know an art form that has two right two central per, you know creator personalities interacting with each other in kind of a novel way. Um, you know, appears in D and D. And William in the chat is pointing to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Um, and, you know, all, all this, you know, Paul and I have worked in a number of successful game companies. And all the ones that I've seen that in game companies that were successful have two personalities. And most, you know, bands that, that I, you know, musical uh, bands that I know of have, a, you know, a core of the band of two. And then other people kind of rotating around them. Is it, is it true, Shannon? I mean, not only did Dave Arneson file two lawsuits, but he won both of those. Am I right? 
uh, he either won them or they were settled out of court to his uh, benefit. I'm, I'm not sure which on them, but right, uh, right. So it seems like there's this sharp there's this sharp change in you know Gygax's perspective about those kinds of things because in the early days like 1970 1971 he was putting uh, posts in uh, fanzines for like I'm willing to just work with anybody on you know game design feel free to get in touch with me and there was this community aspect of kind of like open source you share and I share and there's kind of a mishmash uh, mix up and then this key moment when you know, a large amount of money got on the line and then they, you know, had lawsuit from Arneson and they had cease and desist stores. And very quickly, Gygax snaps to the exact opposite perspective of we're going to be real serious about IP issues and we're going to defend them and nobody else can, can publish for this. And I was looking at like around 1983, 1984, right? Drag in Dragon Magazine, Gary would have his articles published there with a special a special banner that said this article is copyright Gary Gygax, not the company, not the magazine. And he was trying to assert authorial uh, ownership of the copyright, which ultimately didn't actually stick, right? So in, in retrospect, those copyrights didn't, didn't go to the family. Um, so it seems like he had a lot of scar tissue around that, getting burned on that particular issue. And I, I do feel like that is the, the single most like, uh, thing you need to be skeptical about in Gary's writing that he clearly had a whole lot of scar issue around this particular issue of like IP and Arneson's input and stuff like that that makes me that it really when, when you when you realize that's the case that's the thing that makes you have to look at Gary's writings with a much much more skeptical eye later on yeah I, I agree and there was of course a lot more going on that was uh, when the uh, Bloom brothers were increasingly taking control of the company that started happening as early as uh, 81 or so and you know finally climaxed in 85 when he took the company back from them and then lost it to Lorraine uh, Williams and so that's kind of right the time period I think um, the Monster Manual 2 also might have his personal copyright on it I know one of the books that he was uh, the most focused on right in that 83 to 85 period and I think it's that one and interestingly that was it certainly I, I think you only have name on it. Oh, you got it there to look at. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's copyright TSR, but of course it's his primary name in big bold place on the front. Yeah, yeah. So it's just that he left off everyone else's name that contributed stuff, which was a fairly large yes. number. Um, yes. Something. Uh, so uh, he was certainly uh, worried about losing uh, his uh, access to his IP there. Um, if you look at the uh, Sagar the Barbarian uh, game books that he did when he was out in California with Flint Dale, um, they actually originally started out as books to be published for TSR. They were going to be Conan books because uh, TSR had a license for Conan at the time. And then somewhere in the middle of working on them with Flint, he decided, no, he did not want them published by TSR. And so they ended up published by, I don't know who it was, one of the major publishers under you know, his copyright instead of TSR's, which obviously was a very good idea in retrospective. But through that whole period, I suspect he was worried about losing things. He was getting pushed further and further out of TSR. He finally went out to California to work on those things. I think he probably didn't have enough control in uh, uh, Milwaukee. Uh, it's interesting what you said also about uh, always working uh, two creators for a lot of things. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan believer in collaborative uh, creativity, whether it's pairwise, like you were talking about, or serial, like, uh, you know, what so many of the later people have done on TNT. Um, but if you look at uh, Gary Gygax's later work with TSR, he always had a strong partner that he was working with. Uh, Flint Dill, I just mentioned, who he did Sacra the Barbarian with, uh, he said, that's my main collaborator at one point. Before that, uh, Frank Minster was doing a lot of the work with him, not just, you know, doing the OPCMI series, uh, but also the Temple of Elemental Evil. Um, a, a person whose name that I can't quite come up with, Francois Modell, I think there's another name in there, was another right. was one of his big contributors at the time. He seemed to constantly have one person that he was really working with. I know Tim Cass was one of the people that he bounced a lot of the ideas to be off of. 
Right. We had uh, two weeks ago as a guest, we had uh, Jeff Grubb on, um, who we could we could just barely scratch the surface of his work in an hour or two. Uh, but I think that Jeff uh, contributed, as you say, quite a number of the monsters to the Monster Manual too. And he's not yeah. listed that way. He's listed as a design consultant for Monster Manual too. Um, uh, yeah. So same same kind of situation with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I know he did like the later Modrons in there, uh, some other things, but. I'm curious, Shannon. You you mentioned this this time period where where Gary was out in in California, uh, presumably shopping around the Dungeons and Dragons IP, trying to get uh, developments for for film or or television. I'm curious if any of your research has gone down that rabbit hole of of the attempts to license D and D, especially with now, like I think just a couple of days ago, it was announced that a that a D and D television show is now in uh, development. Uh, have you have you looked yeah. into any of that stuff? Minimally, as it touches the other things, uh, as I said, most designers and dragons is focused on companies, uh, and I always look, you know, what are the little interesting asides? And so there's a discussion of the D and D comics, which of course started out as the uh, DC comics, uh, have gone to Kinder and Company, Devils Do, uh, and so many other people since. Uh, there's a one on computers, and uh, I've very much been wanting to write a. Uh, uh, history on Sweet Pea, which was the uh, company that would eventually made the two D and D movies of the early odd odds, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and um, I think the other one must have been the Book of Vile Darkness or something, which have not been very well respected. But right. it's an intriguing company. Um, so pretty much one person that really wanted to get this done, and so he picked up the D&D IP and then he kind of started, picked up the Traveler IP and he thought he was going to make video games and movies and everything. And uh, the amazing thing is that he did make some movies. Hmm. Um, and uh, in the, the recent day, there's been some, well, I'll call it interesting interactions though. It's been, you know, I'm sure very unfortunate for the people involved. There've been a few lawsuits over, uh, you know, the licensing of Gary Gygax's, uh, rights and you know for possible new movies so some stuff i've talked about there's some that i'd definitely like to talk about because it's it's very interesting to see those interfaces between kind of the wider world and uh the role-playing world and they look to me like they're becoming more and more common yeah um the first D movie was indeed going to be when he went out to california it was called the scepter of seven souls it's another thing that he was working on with flint dill and that didn't appear but a D&D cartoon did, which many of us still recall quite well. Uh, we, we, we love the, the, uh, the D&D cartoon here, and um, we've, we've worked that into, Paul has worked that into actually one of the most wonderful uh, role-playing experiences um, uh, <laughs> that, I, that I actually saw. As he, 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 took, he took parts of the D&D cartoon and then turned a horror game into it, which was completely mind-blowing <laughs> uh, in a whole lot of ways. And if, um, if you if you haven't seen it, actually released fairly recently on YouTube, somebody has taken the uh, audio recordings of the unfinished final episode, uh, which which I guess they did a table read of, and then recut uh, animation to it. So you really? can you can watch the final episode, unaired episode of the D and D cartoon if you want. It's out there. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people in. wore wore costumes uh, from that cartoon last night for Halloween. I wonder if that number. <laughs> Thousands or tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shannon, how much? So, uh, so among the things, uh, your, your TSR codex is something you're working on. It hasn't been released yet. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I put drafted the first book. Uh, I'm still working through all of the uh, histories I wrote for D and D classics, uh, and I am kind of systemically uh, putting them all into the same format, which I developed over the four or five years of writing those, expanding many of them and putting them all together. So I'm hoping 2021, 2022, we'll have uh, the first books covering up through 1989 for AD&D and all of basic D&D. Great. It's, it's really, so I, I got a sneak uh, preview at, uh, I think, the first volume of your TSR Codex, which has a great a, a subtitle, which I adore, of Descent into the Depths of the Game, which immediately makes me want to dig into that more. Um, and so it, just the first volume you've got, I think, is almost 300 pages from what I saw. 
And Shannon has like individual sections on every single book, every single supplement, including like the Dungeon Geomorphs products, every single adventure module, including what, you know, is the, the slightly exotic stuff from the from the RPGA product lines. Um, and it is um, it is uh, so incredibly impressive uh, where if somebody wanted to get a preview of some of that material, where could they where could they get that now, Shannon? Yeah, right now I have a Patreon going on. It's uh, just search for Designers and Dragons on Patreon. Um, and the main goal of the uh, Patreon is to produce some uh, new company histories uh, in the format of the original Designers and Dragons. I call those the Lost Histories. I'm not quite sure which of those are going to be done first and kickstarted first. The Lost Histories are the TSR Codex. But also, for the people who come in and just want to see everything I'm working on, um, and I'm uh, usually uh, working on a few things in parallel. Uh, I've also been kicking out all of the uh, 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 TSR Codex products and also a few other products that I'm working on or, or have worked on and I'm trying to figure out what to do with. So uh, the uh, high-level people in my Patreon saw the whole first volume of the TSR Codex that you saw in, in a month or two are going to see uh, the first few chapters of the second book. Great. Great. It's just, it's just super impressive, and it's every you know when I first and I'll just say when I when I first um, again when, to go back when I first saw your stuff on um, uh, what was D and D classics and now drive through RPG and DM DM uh, DM skill you know I don't say this on the show a whole lot but I have a threshold for um, I have a personal uh, threshold for um, judging uh, you know artistic products and the threshold is did someone give a crap. <laughs> And when I, when I saw what you write, I'm like, this is way over the did they give a crap level. This is like, this is numerous thresholds above it. Um, welcome to the cat. We, we're, big, we're, big, we're big cat lovers and wandering the ends. And we're starting to be disappointed if a guest doesn't have a cat join us. Um, what's your yeah. cat's name, Shay? <laughs> Lucifer. Lucifer. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Lucifer. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he was named after the amazing comic from Mike Carey. Uh, called Lucifer, which was based on Neil Gaiman's own Sandman comic. Great, great, fantastic. But, uh, yeah. uh, certainly, <laughs> I feel like I've given a crap about the uh, histories I've been writing. I mean, we all know that uh, nothing you do in the role-playing industry do you do for money. Uh, you do it because it's something that is very near and dear to your heart. And, you know, that's that's been what I, why I've been doing this. Uh, as I said, I've started trying to, uh, I think, successfully working on Designers and Dragon stuff half-time or so since this year. I'm doing that half-time instead of technical writing about Bitcoin and blockchain. And so clearly the one of them would be a lot more profitable, and the other one is something I love and enjoy. Super well put. Super well put. Yeah. Shannon, you're going above and beyond the the your, what what anybody else is doing in the D&D history realm. So now, viewers, I will point out that when Shannon uh, mentioned that he also works on blockchain technical stuff, that is what uh, Shannon and Paul had a hard time uh, getting me to stop blabbing about. Uh, <laughs> But once again, going to focus, going to focus on on uh, fantasy role playing history here. And so, before we're on a time, uh, Shannon, you know, one thing I noticed um, the other uh, the other thing that you're working on for upcoming products is the the Eternal Concordance compilation. And so, I think that it, to me, it's interesting because among your other works, have a fairly broad overview of all kinds of companies' history and all kinds of products. Here's one where you're digging specifically into one fantasy author's work, uh, you know, Michael Moorcock, of course. And from what I've seen of the preview, you've got done the chapters specifically on, you know, his most famous character, Elric, and other fantasy swords and sorcery type stuff. And of course, you know, Elric appears as like one of the three names in Chainmail Fantasy. So he's very much at the kernel of what Gary Gygax was doing with his fantasy games and D&D. And of course, his um, you know his famous uh, alien, intelligent, uh, active magical sword Stormbringer made such an impression that there's an enormous big subsystem in original D and D around intelligent swords. That was a major part of the game that Paul and I played last night uh, for our live Halloween game with with our friend from DM, as a matter of fact. 
And um, why did you pick, um, you know, and, and arguably a major component of the fighter class in original D&D is they're the people that get to use intelligent swords with a whole bunch of extra right. Why? What drew you to Moorcock in particular to do a, a whole volume just on his works, like Elric? Yeah, well, I feel like often when you're a writer, you don't pick things. They pick you. And uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, I've been a big fan of him since uh, I was old enough to read. Um, I have no idea where I came into his books the first time. Was it from D&D? Maybe? I don't know. Um, but I distinctly remember when I was in junior high, so... Uh, going out to uh, the special bookstore in uh, Campbell in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area where they had British imports. Because, you know, this was the early to mid-80s. Most of Michael Moorcock's books were not in print at the time. Uh, there were some volumes of Elric and, you know, maybe Hawkmoon. So I've been reading them my whole life. Uh, I think many of his books I've read three, four, five times, especially Elric Hawkmoon. Um, a, a lot of writing projects, they just kind of come about. And so at one point, uh, RPG net, I was running for uh, a SCOTUS for a good 15 years or so. And at one point we said, Hey, we'd really like to, uh, also have a science fiction site where we can talk about, you know, science fiction books, these other things that interest us. And whenever I run a site like that, I've always said, so what can I contribute content wise that will help? you know, make this a great community with great content that people are interested in. That's actually why I started writing Designers and Dragons, because I was like, hey, maybe I could write a column for RPGNet about these gaming histories that I've become interested in. Uh, in this case, the uh, work on um, the Eternal Concordance, which is hopefully going to be a look at every single one of Michael Moorcock's major books and uh, many of his uh, crucially linked short stories. And there's actually a considerable amount beyond what I sent you um, maybe two thirds of his books or stuff are done right now. It's just, that was as far as I've edited through on my recent work. Uh, but anyway, for, uh, this other site, which we were calling Zanaji, I was like, Hey, I'd been kind of interested in starting to do another reread of Michael Moorcock. Maybe I could just write a little bit for these new forums. And that would be something that would draw people and we could talk about them. And so I wrote all those for Zanagia and eventually Zanagia, we closed down as a site. And so I transferred them all over to RPGNet. And at some point I said, you know, I kind of have so much here. This would be a great book. And so those were still the very foundational things, but it just kind of translated through. Um, one of my styles of writing in general has always been to write little bits and then start connecting them together. So Designers and Dragons, they're little histories. I mean, some of them are uh, probably 20,000, 30,000 words for TFR, but most of them are 48,000. And uh, I was for a long time writing about the Aldriami for uh, Greg Stafford's Glorantha. And similarly, I started that out by writing little myths. Um, and to me, it kind of is the same as the collaborative creativity that I was talking about. It's kind of cre collaborative creativity with yourself and that you're writing these little bits. And because you're focusing on each one individually, you don't quite see how they go together. And then suddenly you do, and you have a larger story than you realized you had before. Nice. Super nice. Just going to digest that for a second. <laughs> 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 that, was, that was a really nice observation, actually. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Gl Gl Glorantha there for uh, a second, uh, and among your the lost histories you're working on is you have a, a, a very detailed section on uh, Reaching Moon or what became Moon Design Companies. Um, how much of a how much of a connection do you have? A, do you have a particular connection with the the Moon Design um, Group to know so much about uh, Glorantha, I, or is that just digging into your your, I, your standard research? Program? No, no, that was. That was one of the most personal histories that I've written. Um, if, if I said, hey, what is my fandom? You know, what is the particular type of role playing that intrigues me the most? It's RuneQuest. It was a game that I met the first time when I came to college. Uh, I, I had a great GM who ran great games, not Sun Glorantha as it happens, but I don't think you can 
really do any uh, game using RuneQuest without at least being heavily influenced by Glorantha. And he was. So, you know, he just had a wacky fun house uh, mirror that had dragon nudes and all the rest. But since it was my fandom, and it was my fandom particularly in college and afterward, that was when Reaching Moon started publishing. They were a fan, uh, fan operated uh, company that uh, started publishing in 1989 in the UK. And so uh, they had a magazine called Tales of the Reaching Moon, which I subscribed to. And uh, when their third convention came around, which was uh, Convulsion 3D in 1996, I think, I went out there uh, for Britain with my friend who ran that RuneQuest game. And so I got to meet a lot of the people there. Um, and though I didn't ever actually contribute to uh, Tales of the Reaching Moon, I contributed to a lot of the other fanzines which uh, appeared about uh, RuneQuest and Gorantha and Chaosium too in the 90s. That was kind of when uh, RuneQuest was dying out. Uh, it was being held by Avalon Hill. Chaosium had made a very bad deal with them. Chaosium realized they were going to go out of business if they kept publishing things. Uh, Avalon Hill stopped publishing RuneQuest a few different times. And so fans mainly carried on the uh, flame during that. So I was very involved with all of that. Um, some of the people in reaching design uh, let me stay at their house when I was in Britain, uh, which I think says a lot about the community. These were people, you know, that I just kind of faintly knew from, you know, the pages of these magazines. Because this was the mid '90s, you didn't have much of an internet. Uh, I was at Berkeley, and so I had some access, but I don't know if they all did or not. Um, and so there are people I've always known, though I wouldn't say super closely. And I also worked at Chaosium in the slightly uh, later 90s, which let me work directly with Greg Stafford. Um, I talked about the Aldriami. That was work that came out of, hey, I'm interested in this, and him saying, okay, you're my elf guy now. You know, let's start working on figuring out what the philosophy and mythology of the elves are. Um, so Reaching Moon didn't quite become Moon Design. Rather, what happened was Reaching Moon started burning out, as you know, most fan organizations do after about a decade. Um, and that includes a lot of role-playing publishers, because most role-playing publishers, they're absolutely publishing at a professional level, but they're doing it in their free time. Um, one of the people involved, who was Rick Mainz, uh, said, hey, I would like to start publishing some reprints of old material that's now out of print because of the Avalon Hill situation. Reaching Moon said no, uh, David Hall primarily. He's the one who really carried the torch for uh, RuneQuest during that time. Um, Reaching Moon said no, we're done. And so he started up Moon Design. Um, Moon Design ended up publishing those classics, that Hero Quest, uh, worked directly with Greg Stafford. Uh, Jeff Richard joined them. They ended up with the rights to RuneQuest, the rights to Glorantha. Uh, and then they kind of um, had a reorganization, is how I've heard it described, to pretty much take over Chaosium. And so the modern Chaosium comes out of these fan organizations and are some of the people that I got to interact with and, and still interact with now. They're great people who, you know, you were saying your main criteria is, you know, is this something that the creators will love? And these are all people that really love Chaosium uh, and really love RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu and the rest of the games, and boy, it's shown in the products. I cannot think of another company from as old of as Chaosium or any anywhere near that who had kind of a resurrection in the modern day that has been as creatively successful as what Chaosium has done. Great, that's great, that's great. It's really interesting, you know, to uh, you know people of a certain age now. Um, the 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 enormous, you know, really historical change in just ability to connect and find you know people and 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 materials is you talked about uh you know really having difficulty finding books by michael moorcock and you know to find uh connections you know internet intercontinental connections through a little blurb in a magazine or something like that and we used to have to really go on you know months-long quests to find a product or a book or a particular you know module that was out of print or connect to people at a convention or something like that 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 the internet has made you know so so much easier when you have this uh, you know a little bit of a subculture not everybody's into what we do um, and the ability to connect and find things so much more easily than we used to have 
I mean, I, you know, the, the wizards uh, pouring through libraries in our fantasy stories are, you know, were us at one point. That's exactly the kind of, you know, possibly perilous quest that we have to go on just to find like a, like a book or a gaming product or a friend at one point. Uh, so what, what an amazing, what an amazing uh, different world we're in now, as a matter of fact. Let me ask one, yeah. let me ask one next thing. Okay, so Shannon, since you are probably the world's expert on, you know, an overview of gaming companies. And one thing you mentioned there is usually they tend to last about 10 years. Are there any like broad, like what are the top two or three main lessons for like if someone wants to indie publish or, you know, make a company in this, what are the top two or three lessons you can take from your historical knowledge to today? Or is, or is the world so different that, that, that the lessons don't even apply anymore? Um, the world isn't so different because Designers and Dragons has covered it all. And so, you know, I, I probably wouldn't give you a lesson about, you know, what to do in the 70s, which would just be, you know, well, publish it, but don't use the word Dungeons and Dragons. But you can see the <laughs> evolution of history since then. And there have certainly been some things that have been in common. I would say, don't expect to make a lot of money. Um, don't depend on it, you know, for your house payment. Don't necessarily think you're going to make a profit or ever, uh, you know, even pay yourself. Um, make sure you have lots of time. Um, and uh, make sure you're willing to use that time on this because you love doing it. And, and make sure you love doing it. Um, make sure you know what you're producing, but also make sure you know the industry. Uh, you know, Ron Edwards, very famous uh, fantasy heartbreakers article, talked about all of these uh, games that came up and just kind of reiterated what a lot of the industry had already done. And the important thing always to note in that uh, article was that he called them heartbreakers. And that's because these were people with enthusiasm, with some great ideas, but you know, one of their great ideas was, I'm going to make a game with a skill system. Because D&D doesn't have one. So, you know, that must be <laughs> So you got to know the industry, too. Um, I think in the modern day, you have to know graphics. You have to be able to produce something that is beautiful. to get away with something very different in the 70s. Um, and uh, if you don't know that yourself, no problem. Just make sure you have someone who can. And that's probably one of the hardest things that you probably have people coming in as designers and writers mainly finding the illustrators is really a trick and you know figure out how to do that uh how to get great people who will do great uh work for you and that you make sure you can pay appropriately fascinating great Good advice thought. great advice yeah, yeah. well we're just about out of time here so we really should wrap things up um any 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 final thoughts anything that we didn't cover there shannon that you were hoping to get in i think that mainly uh covers it for me it's been great talking to both of you and i've enjoyed talking about the history of the industry thank you yeah that's great now we didn't you know we barely scratched uh the glorantha and rune quest and we didn't we didn't we just we just we momentarily mentioned that you'd worked on call of cthulhu that we would love to get into some other time so we, uh, if, if we asked you to come back another another time, Shannon, would you be willing to do that? Certainly. I'd love to. I'm a big fan of the collaborative creativity of the uh, Cthulhu Lovecraft mythos of Glorantha, too. So we'd love to talk about any of those topics. Great. Awesome. We hope we can do that. We'll make that happen. Uh, if any of our viewers have any uh, particular questions or thoughts that would uh, naturally come up in such a uh, follow-up conversation, please leave them in the comments below. Uh, we will certainly farm it uh, down the road. Absolutely. And uh, if you're new to the show uh, recently, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, on a bunch of social media sites like Twitter and YouTube and Twitch and Facebook. I think that's it. And we have the handle Wandering DMs, all one word on all of those of those sites. So please uh, subscribe to see uh, more uh, interviews like uh, today's with Shannon. Excellent. Yes. And uh, be aware that if you prefer, you can listen to our shows in audio-only podcast format. Uh, those are available on our website at wanderingdms.com, as well as through various podcast carriers, such as iTunes and Google Podcast and Spotify. If you are listening to us on one of those other carriers, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That really helps other folks find our podcast. 
It really does. We do appreciate that. And we have to give a big thanks to our growing list of patrons who support the Wandering DM show and all that we do here. Um, if you would like to join our patrons in supporting the Wandering DMs, uh, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. And you can get a number of benefits. Uh, you can get access to our private Discord server where we usually hang out for about half an hour after this show every Sunday and just chat with patrons, as a matter of fact, as well as benefits on merch and uh, input into what gets on our blogs and probably a bunch of other stuff that Paul might possibly fill in here. Or maybe I got all of it this time. <laughs> I think you're good, Dan. <laughs> in addition to that, you should also visit Shannon's Patreon. So please also um, go to patreon.com slash designers and dragons and see what Shannon's up to. And his Patreon allows you... Uh, um, uh, immediate access to his early writings that are going to go into new books that other people won't get for like another year or two. So please visit uh, Shannon's Patreon, as well as look for his Designers and Dragons volumes that are on DriveThruRPG. And you can also look for his approximately monthly columns, I think that he has on RPG.net. Designers-and-dragons.RPG.net. I think I got that right. Is that right, Shannon? I think so. Awesome. Great. So look for, look for all that. And of course, we'll put the links into the archive on YouTube after the show. So you can look for all that stuff by Shannon. And uh, don't forget about our upcoming shows. Now, we do not have a new episode of The Big Bad this Tuesday. Uh, we are taking a week off. Uh, we will be back November 10th uh, for episode four. Do please, if you live in the U.S. and you haven't done so already, please do go vote and wear a mask. Um, uh, so we'll be back uh, uh, November 10th with our next episode of The Big Bad. Uh, Paul does have a new episode of Ten Dead Rats on Thursday, and uh, I think that's I think that's what's coming up for us this week. Is that right, Paul? You got it. Cool. So don't forget that we, of course, are live every Sunday, one p.m. Eastern time. So please do join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. And thanks well, to Shannon. <laughs> we'll see you then. Bye, everyone.